Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Loveless Biomedical Podcast. Hello and welcome. My name is Jake McDonald and today I'm here with Jane Lindborg and Rachel Cooper and we're going to talk about neurological assessments and gene therapy and how you go about that and what you do. And I'm going to start first uh, by asking Jane, who's worked with us for what, three years now? Uh, a little over a year. Good God. It seems like you've been for, here forever. She's so talented. It's like in six months, I'm like, how long have you worked here? Ten years? <laughs> Uh, and anyways, so Jane, Jane, you're wonderful. And, and how did you come to get here? Well, I'm actually from here. I was born and raised here. Uh, I left after high school and went first to Washington and then to Burkina Faso in, the, in West Africa and then to Ohio and then to Connecticut. And I just, you know, I love New Mexico, so I had to come home. When you say we were born here, you mean not like here at the lab, right? Uh, <laughs> in Albuquerque, right? indeed, indeed, in Albuquerque, <laughs> and 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 we're we're so glad that Albuquerque dragged you back here because even though you've been here for a year, it seems like forever because you're so talented and good at everything you do. I'm glad and, it's not because I know you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Rachel, you you've actually probably only been here a year or so too. Is that correct? Coming up on two years now. Good God, yep. <laughs> time flies. So Rachel is our attending veterinarian. And uh, ask her, tell her, how did you get here? Uh, I know you drove. drove. I drove, yeah, across the country uh, from (laughs) Maryland, uh, where I am from um, and where I most recently came from as well. Um, I have never lived in this area of the country before. Um, I think that I came to the Grand Canyon once in middle school (laughs) and since have not been out here until the day that I (laughs) drove out uh, to move here. So it's been a fun adventure. I know as a veterinarian, uh, I'm not a veterinarian, but so w- whenever anything challenging comes up, I run to the veterinarian and say, hey, can you figure out how to do this? <laughs> and so I know that with neurological assessments and with dosing to the CNS system, that was no different. Mm-hmm. And so I presume in veterinarian school, they didn't teach you how to do intrathecal dosing and all sorts of crazy things like that, did they? Uh, no, not quite. We do CSF taps uh, that we mm-hmm. learn in vet school, but usually we just get to watch those. And it's the you know, attending physicians that actually perform those types of procedures uh, in the academic setting. Um, but yep, the answer to, <laughs> to your question is sometimes we can figure it out. Um, and we're always happy to try. Great. Well, I, I will uh, speak to the talent of these two folks, and they've been able to do a lot of uh, work and, and gain a lot of uh, interest and capabilities around CNS over the last couple of years. And I'll say, uh, working within the lab, uh, we work with a lot of folks from different organizations, and what we've seen over the past few years is a continued interest to please the FDA so they can get into the clinic, of course. But that is coming through. One of the things that we keep seeing is a checkbox that people want to say to look at neurological assessments, to look at neurological liabilities that may exist as part of the IND package. Jane, do you have any feel for, for why, why we've seen that uptick over the last few years relative to where we were five years ago or so? Yeah, certainly. So over the course of the past five years or so with the uptick of gene therapy and gene therapy programs. In some of these programs, there have been some adverse effects that have been observed after delivery of AAV, and these adverse effects are often neurological in nature. They are 
also associated with some liver uh, toxicity, but across different species and sometimes even with the same test article, you can see differential effects on uh, neurological outcomes in these animals, and these can be very obvious. Um, it could be changes in gait, uh, functioning of uh, respiration, um, abnormalities in their awareness, um, their movement coordination, um, and you can actually see it sometimes later on uh, when you look at their their tissues. Is, is that in the assessments that have been done? I've seen some of this say this linked to AAV this or that and the other. Is it been linked to the vector mostly, or the gene therapy, or both, or or, or is there a combination? Or are there some vectors that are more important than others that there might be concern, or are they just sort of taking a a look at everything kind of approach to it? Certainly when you're targeting the CNS, uh, you typically use certain serotypes of AAV, and these include AAV8 and AAV9. And these, while they are targeted to CNS tissues, they also um, have a high tropism for liver tissues, Mm -hmm. and that is where you see a majority of the hepatotoxicity. But this isn't something that is limited to the AAV uh, specifically, it is broad across all kinds of viruses. AAV is definitely the preferred when you want to go to the clinic, though, because it has low immunogenicity and is one of the safer options. And didn't you do your postdoc on AAV in the CNS or something like that? I did. Uh, I did AAV in uh, the retina. So I was looking at regeneration of retinal ganglion cells after injury oh. of the optic nerve. So it was very localized. This wasn't... Um, a broad, uh, universal, getting everywhere kind of vector. It was limited to uh, injections into the eye, um, targeting specifically those retinal ganglion cells and hoping that we could get them to regenerate their axons. And so that that's kind of um, an issue where you want to get into oh, the specificity of the AAV that you want to use, um, specifically for a local injection. So if you want to really target retinal ganglion cells, you want to use an AAV2. But, um, and there we don't have to worry about any sort of off-target effects globally that, you know, affect the liver because it is such a small amount of virus that you're injecting and it is quite localized to your intended target. Now, you, you were at Yale when you did that, right? Yes. Is that a good school? You know, it's decent from time to time. Uh, I was in the lab of Dr. Steve Strutmatter, <laughs> and uh, he was great. Yeah. Poor Rachel, well, you went to what, John Hopkins or something like that? Where's that? I think it's Johns Hopkins. Oh, Johns. Oh, was there multiple Johns? No, his first name is Johns. <laughs> so, you know, Rachel, one of the things I know that you get involved with, what you know, we're, we're, there's a number of ways that we have to look at the potential liabilities of neurological, um, in neurological assessments. And I know you work uh, with a lot of non-human primates, and one of the things that we have to do is assess neurobehavior as a, uh, dur- during study uh, in non-human primates. And how do you go about doing that? I always think, uh, you know, what they all kind of look the same to me when they're on study, and how do you kind of do that with, with, with the monkeys to be able to kind of follow our protocol to assess this with some degree of specificity? Well, that's a good question because a lot of the changes can be quite subtle. Usually we don't see, you know, overt toxicities, um, you know, in the way of animals being found unresponsive or, you know, seizuring. Um, Usually 
the findings are quite, again, as I said, subtle. So we have a whole scheme of um, step-by-step assessments um, that are performed by technicians who are familiar with the animals, um, familiar with the, um, the types of assessments and the types of responses that are typical uh, for the monkeys that they work with. Um, so we start with, you know, as Jane mentioned before, just basic cage-side observations of mentation. So are the animals maybe more aggressive than they normally are? Um, are they as active as they normally are? Um, uh, is their quality of movement the same? Are they moving around the cage um, as they normally do? And again, this is something, you know, that's more better or more generally picked up by, you know, technicians who are going to be familiar with the animals. Um, as an untrained observer, you may not notice anything at all. Um, but the assessments include not only those cage site observations, um, but also um, a series of targeted tests uh, that are performed with each animal um, after they're taken out of the cage. Um, so we'll do an extensive assessment of all of the cranial nerves, um, so assessing for vision, assess- assessing for the ability to hear, Um, even assessing for things like smell and taste, although those are a little bit more difficult to suss out um, reliably. Hmm. Um, But, you know, with these scoring systems um, and, you know, long list of tests that are performed for each animal on a, you know, weekly basis, for example, over the course of a long study, you can start to see um, changes within specific animals or groups of animals over time. Okay, interesting. How, how do you do, just out of curiosity, how do you, how do you look at sight? Um, so we have a few things we do. Uh, one would be what we refer to as visual tracking. Um, so we'll have an item that is maybe of interest to the animal, um, and it'll you know drop down or maybe move around, um, and we'll expect the animal to track that object with their eyes. Okay, that makes sense. Kind of like when I take my kids in for their physical, more or less. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So anything you might do with a baby—that's a similar, you know, assessment tool that we may use with an animal. Yeah. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Okay, great. Uh, well, that's with a non-human primate. What do you do with a mouse? How does that work, Jane? You, uh, you done, you've done a lot of those assessments. What is that? Yeah. So they're very similar types of tests. So these are all tests that assess behavioral, sensory, motor neuromuscular function, and they're very similar. Uh, You have your in-cage measurements where you're just observing the animal, the mouse, or the the rat without any sort of manipulation, and you're looking for any sort of abnormal behaviors such as uh, compulsive grooming or um, perhaps self-mutilation, things of that sort. Um, And then you take them out of the cage and you do sort of similar tests to what Rachel did. You look at pupillary reflex. Uh, you can't really have them follow an object, but you can at least assess that autonomic function. You can assess their gait, um, just their, their general movement by putting them in an open field and assessing distance, velocity, and actually a whole slew of other measurements um, with the software that we have. And then you can assess the grip strength. So that is an assessment of neuromuscular function, which can be quite important in some of these neurodegenerative conditions and neurodegenerative transgenic mice models that we have. Um, so that is a great measurement to see the effic- efficacy of your test article uh, and also a baseline. So they're, they're very similar to the non-human primate, um, and they're a great way to assess any sort of time differential effects of test article. 
How many rats do you typically do in a day if you're doing these assessments? Like, you, what is what's, what's the throughput for something like that? Uh, certainly. So, depending on the number of technicians that we have on staff, uh, I like perhaps to get to six through twelve rats a day. It's enough time so that you can spend an adequate amount of time on each test with each animal so that you can observe behavior over time and allow them to acclimate to each environment before you perform your assessment. This is a, like you have to take time and learn, learn them and get to know the get to know them and know what's going on, how they feel and all those sorts of things as best, best as possible anyways. True, and it's really important that the technicians involved um, are familiar with the tests themselves because it can be uh, slight changes that you would observe and so getting acclimated to the procedures and knowing how to go about the tests is very important. So we, we like to have the same technicians on each study um, each time so that the animals are both familiar and the technicians are familiar with the, the assays themselves. Hmm. Well, I, I know that, you know, in addition to looking for what might go wrong and all those sorts of things, I know one of the, what you guys have been also working on is how to better deliver uh, medications to the CNS system and, and, and how you might deliver that more effectively and efficiently. And I, I know what ultimately in gene therapy, a big challenge is getting the drug the, to the place you want it to be uh, without it degrading and things like that. And I know, Rachel, you and your team worked this past year on <clears throat> intrathecal approaches in non-human primates. First of all, what the heck does that mean? And second of all, uh, can you talk me through what you did to develop that and make sure it works, and what are some of those considerations for that? Okay. So intrathecal administration is simply administration of, um, you know, some, some material into the space that holds the uh, cerebrospinal fluid, um, so the CSF. So it's as simple as that. Um, we're looking to get into the meninges, essentially into that space um, with all that fluid uh, between the outer meninges and the the inner meninges that you know hugs closely to the brain. Um, so there are multiple sites um, on the body of an animal um, or a, or a human uh, that you could use to access this this same space. Essentially, um, what we've been doing here so far is a lumbar intrathecal puncture, um, which is what you'll see um, in the clinic um, for intrathecal delivery of a lot of uh, drugs and medications, um, and that's um, exactly how you picture it. Um, so a needle delivered right um, into an intervertebral space um, down in the lower back. Um, we've also been working on delivery uh, into the uh, cisterna magna, which is the space uh, just below the skull, um, and there is a pretty large collection of CSF uh, within that intrathecal space um, that exists right at that location. Um, so in animals, we use this really commonly as a site for collection of cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF. Um, in humans, this really isn't commonly used uh, clinically um, because there is um, a much higher risk in humans of um, damaging or affecting um, structures in the brain stem, um, which of course is very closely associated with that, that area. Um, but for us, um, in animal models, it's a very useful site um, for you know, drug delivery and CSF collection, um, as it is such a large pool of CSF that exists there. Um, and if we are trying to target um, structures in the brain um, for 
delivery of these AAV uh, vectored drugs, um, then delivery at that site will result in higher concentration um, of the test article within the brain. And it's also nice, the intrathecal route compared to um, intravenous route, just because you have to use so much more test article mm-hmm. to get where you want it to go right. when you're doing it via IV. And the intrathecal route, it just use a lot less vector, uh, a lot less virus, and it gets to where you want it to go. And with AAV, it's persistent. It lasts a long time. So at least while clinically it's, you know, one of those things where it, there are risks involved with the injection procedure, you wouldn't have to do it as often as you would intravenously or via other methods. And you avoid getting stuff to the liver, at least mm-hmm. as much as you would get by IV and stuff, of course, right? Yes. So, and, and, you know, that's really one of the major issues with, with gene therapy is it's almost often something associated with the liver. Right, right. And, you know, that people now are trying to really narrow down the tropism of their AAVs by manipulating them and, like, engineering hybrid ones so that it targets specifically uh, certain cells without getting to where they don't want it to go. Um, and that's... That's really a cool place in the field because that would really streamline the process in terms of, you know, assessing where it's going. You know it's going to go where you want it to go and not having to worry about off-target effects, which is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a concern. <laughs> so the, well, you know, one, so, so that's good. I know that when we were developing that technique for the animal models, I know you had, I watched you do it, I think, through the window a few times. And the, the it was it was it didn't look easy and so what did you do to make sure that it was actually working great question of course we're doing these injections in monkeys that are two to three kilograms in size so it's a bit different than approaching a lumbar puncture in a a human patient for example right even a a young child Um, so those spaces are small the bones are small everything is small Um, so when we went about um, you know developing this uh, system of injection in-house given that we have access to um, x-rays but we do not generally use fluoroscopy or have never used that here um, we elected to go with a method of confirmation that took advantage of our X-ray modality. Um, so we used a contrast agent, um, iodine-based, um, that is safe for intrathecal administration, um, injected that um, into our various delivery sites, um, and took serial X-rays after the fact to confirm um, you know, proper targeting and uh, you know, distribution of the uh, injectate following the procedure. Yeah, they're pretty cool images. You can see mm-hmm. over time the fluid dynamics of the contrast mm-hmm. agent moving through. Mm-hmm. And, and how, how many how many times did you screw it up? Like, like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think like, she's ever screwed up. Right, <laughs> right. Like, you know, th- that, that's the issue is like <laughs> you, it worked every time. Everyone's like, oh, this is going to be really difficult. I want you to use a contrast agent and yada, yada. And then you just did it and yeah. it worked. Well, uh, yeah, it is scary every time, but somehow <laughs> it keeps working. Um, but, you know, of course, another method of confirmation that I use in the moment is that return of CSF. And sure. once okay. I'm getting CSF out so of my cheat, needle, kinda. I cheat a little bit. Once I see the CSF 
there's no other place I could be. I know oh, then it's the no right big spot. deal. I can do so, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't poke a few oh, people. I'll put you on the schedule for oh, next Oh, yeah, for sure. I, uh, scalpel? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, one uh, thing, circling back to the the potential liabilities associated with the AV, I know we talked about neurological assessments. We talked about dosing and things like that. I know one of the things that comes when you do gene therapy studies, they want you to collect every darn tissue known to known to the world. And and that's no different with the CNS area. And, and what are some of the things that we're asked to collect and looking at that that are unique and that also create some challenges for us that, that we have to deal with on the pathology side? Well, in those earlier studies that I was talking about where you saw some neurobehavioral dysfunction within the live animals. So post-mortem assessment of the tissues showed degeneration in CNS tissues of the spinal cord, but also in peripheral nerves, like the radial nerve and the sciatic nerve. And then they also saw inflammation and degeneration of the dorsal root ganglia. So those have become standard collections uh, following a V gene or just any sort of gene therapy administration. Um, So you need to collect those tissues and assess them for various assays, um, including histopathology to see what's going on structurally um, and accumulation of different cells. But you also want to look whether your uh, vector has gotten to that area and that might be correlated with the sort of findings that you're seeing there histopathologically and whether there's transgene expression there. So with gene therapy, you're collecting a whole bunch of CNS and PNS tissues in addition to your standard uh, tox collection tissues, your major organs. I've, I've seen them try to collect those uh, DRGs in the mice. That looks really fun. I did that in grad school. <laughs> I used to get to lab at like 3 a.m. so that I could make my flow cytometry appointment to you know sort my cells from the DRGs. Oh, my gosh, it's so small, the, those little DRGs, and you have to maintain those, the nerve structure if you want to do histopath. But, oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. I need my bifocals times two to even see yeah. the little buggers. I, mean, I know, but uh, our necropsy team is so much faster than I ever was, you sure. know, doing it. So they're they're great, and they have the system down where they can collect it uh, via clean aseptic technique for RNA and DNA assays and histopath, whatever you're doing. That's, that's great. So I guess one another question I asked you guys about, you know, Let's say you find something or you want to look in more detail of uh, different assays beyond just behavioral assessments and things like that, or you want to look a little bit closer or look into a mechanism. Are there any other assays that, that, that might be useful uh, that you guys might be using? Well, lately what we would like to, or what we have been doing with some studies is that perhaps we see something after the fact, so after the animals have been necropsied and you see degeneration in the spinal cord or in some nerves, but you didn't see any sort of effects in the animal while they're alive during those neurobehavioral assessments. And so to answer the question of whether there is some correlation of function with the degeneration that you're actually seeing uh, post-mortem, we're starting to do nerve conduction studies where you actually get a quantifiable readout of nerve function. So electrodes are replaced subcutaneously, so it's very non-invasive. At specific nerves, you can do both um, sensory and motor nerves in the arms and legs. And that is a great way to see whether those nerves are actually functioning properly. You can't assess or determine just 
via the qualitative, more qualitative neuroassessments. And so those are going to prove quite useful when we look um, at the postmortem tissue and see, oh, yes, we did see that there was a decreased nerve function in the sciatic nerve or in the tibial nerve, and we see degeneration there as well. Oh, awesome. And, and you... Is that a difficult assay to perform, or, or is it pretty straightforward? Or So uh, I observed it once. I don't do it myself, but uh, it seemed pretty straightforward. I mean, oh, good. the the, uh, the scientist performing it was very qualified and knew exactly um, where to place those, those electrodes, um, and we gathered data from, I believe, seven nerves. So we have a lot of baseline and post-test article data where we can assess nerve function in those nerves that we are going to collect during mm-hmm. those necropsies. So I'm going to switch because I'm going to ask you, Rachel, you're, you're from Maryland. You're from the East, right? Mm-hmm. So what's your favorite part about the Southwest so far? Well, I guess I'll give the typical answer, which is that the, you know, the out of doors is, is right sure. there. Um, nature is right next door. Uh, I can drive 20 minutes and be at a mountain and spend all day hiking up and down it. Um, <laughs> it's really, you know, it's an incredible opportunity. I miss the water a little bit. Yeah. Um, oh, no, but there okay. are places. There's the river, the Rio Grande. That doesn't count. <laughs> 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 like, I did go tubing last summer at one point and oh, nice. was floating down with a bunch of horse manure. <laughs> My clothes were pretty stained <laughs> after that whole adventure. So we actually water, had, yes. We, we had a scientist probably I don't know, ten or fifteen years ago that moved out here from Florida and he made us move his sailboat. And so mm-hmm. we're like, okay, to great. where? Right. So we got your sailboat to New Mexico. What are you gonna do with it now, buddy? <laughs> So how about you, Jane? You came. You came back. You you love. You love New Mexico. You grew up here. What, what What do you love about? What do you do? I mean, other than the obvious. Um, I like to eat anything with green chili. Something <laughs> that I missed mm-hmm. those fifteen years I was away. So I've been busy with that. And then uh, <laughs> aside from that, I uh, hang out a lot with cats of all kinds, and I like to read. I'm actually quite a homebody, but. I like the mountains. You know, I see them. Sure. <laughs> <They're nice. laughs> That's great. Well, I want to thank both of you guys for your time today. And I, I know that uh, Eric, our marketing guy, will be uh, setting podcast the po- producer. podcast producer. <laughs> the official title. I didn't shoot. I changed your business card, buddy. Yeah, I know. And uh, we'll be sending this out. Also, uh, a link and some information to a webinar that uh, you had done previously and some other stuff. And so we, this was great. And thank you guys for your time and uh, appreciate it as always. Thanks for having Thanks. us, Jake. Right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Loveless Biomedical Podcast. 